welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com.au. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 to 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and that you speak to us through it. And Lord, here in chapter 12, you call us to live in light of it. You call us to live lives uh, that know you and love you and love those around us as well. And so we pray that you, by your spirit, will work in our hearts, helping us to acknowledge the areas in our life where we fall short, but also moving our hearts towards you and towards the people around us in love. We do pray for this now. In your son's name, amen. Uh, There's a TV show, a sitcom, right, that's making a comeback. It's making its rounds again uh, 25 years later. Do you know what sitcom I'm talking about? Friends. Who here doesn't know Friends? Everyone knows? Come on, really, Sam? Every week, every week, uh, it's always one person. It's always always Sam, actually. Um, So Friends... Everyone, this is Friends, okay? So this was in the 90s. It's come back. It's on Netflix. You can binge watch it. They had a reunion recently, like in the last month sometime. I haven't watched that yet. But I grew up watching Friends uh, in the 90s. I was a kid, and it would be on every week, one episode a week with commercials, and I'd look forward to it every week with my sisters to watch Friends, right? Uh, so you've got these six characters. You've got Joey, Chandler, Phoebe, Rachel, Monica, and Ross. They're friends. They live in upstate New York. Uh, they have enough money to live in, in Manhattan, which is crazy as young adults. Uh, they're working there. Uh, and yeah, it, it's really interesting. It's having this comeback. Uh, Generation Z, some of you here, are watching Friends. And you guys know about it more than I do now. And you're telling me stuff that I don't even remember that was in the shows. And so a lot of people are watching it. And, uh, and it really fascinates me. Because uh, the jokes are really inappropriate for 2021. Um, but it's interesting that people want to watch it. And I read this article. On, on the New York, New York Times uh, about why people are so intrigued by the sitcom and why it's having this comeback and why people love it. And this, uh, this is paragraph in this article. I want to read it to you. It's really interesting. It says this, uh, the friends, they were really there for each other. Punchlines and all, the, that there-ness was the show's intangible hook. 
the writers could engineer plots for the directors to orchestrate. But these six actors working together on anything or nothing, it was a highlight of many a person's week. That thereness was phenomenally elastic too. These were six people who could snipe at one another, who could fight and lie and practice what we'd now call radical honesty, yet keep so many secrets who can break up many times in many ways, but keep snapping back together. I like them that way as half a dozen. I like them in tandems and trios as humans, as, as human math problems, as chemistry experiments. Maybe 10 times I've watched Chandler, Joey and Monica break down and confess to the other three that yes, Chandler did pee on Monica's jellyfish thing. I don't know how many takes that sequence took or how much caffeine was consumed, but it's never less than a marvel of harmonized hysterics. I think there's something really special that that New York Times article highlighted just from the beginning. They were there for each other. Through good and bad, often dysfunctional, but that thereness was the show's intangible hook. See, friends brought us into this world of adulthood where you could just hang out with your friends no matter how different you are, with all the messiness of, of love and insecurity and taking responsibility, but they were there for each other, no matter what. Friends that looked like a, a family. And you see, what Friends, the sitcom does, it, it really speaks to the human heart, doesn't it? Uh, it, it resonates with, with us. There's a reason why the show is still so popular 25 years later, because we love seeing people there for each other through thick and thin. We want to have that, don't we? Uh, are people who uh, we can love and be loved by, regardless of who we are, with all our quirks and differences, with all our mess, we can still find acceptance and be there for each other. Don't we all want that? Now, what if I said this was actually something God instituted, that something God intended for us as well, for us to be able to do life together like a family? We could be a group of people whose lives are marked by something uh, special. What if God intended that for us? That would lead people who are watching in on us to want it as well, just like we want what the friends have. It's no surprise to us, but God calls us to love, doesn't he? And what we're going to see today is how we can go about loving and accepting one another, even our enemies, so that others could see our lives and see that intangible hook that will make them go, wow, that's something I need in my life too. In these 13 verses, we're going to hear a lot of commands and instructions. There's a lot. There's, I think I count around 30 instructions here in these 13 verses. But what, we, what we're going to do is we're going to just summarize them in, in how God calls us to love one another, the church, and how God calls us to love our enemies as well. So let's get into it. Have your Bibles open so you can follow along with me. From verse 9, I'm reading. Chapter 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I'll stop there. Uh, last week, in Romans chapter 12, we saw it was a turning point for this letter. Yeah, uh, last week, we heard about how God calls us to be uh, transformed, to live as a living sacrifice in light of God's mercy and His graces to us, His love for us. And so verse 9, it, it, it continues that idea. How do we live a transformed life? Well, start off, it starts off with love. This statement, love must be sincere. It has to be genuine. The idea is it's not hypocritical, not fake, not inauthentic. Love must be sincere. 
Now, we can all accept that love, that's a good thing, but how do we practice it? How do we do it in real life? I mean, it's so easy to love in a way that's shallow, isn't it? I, you know, I can say I love my church, but who in my church do I actually love? I can love the idea of church. I love the idea of this community. But who do I actually love? Do I just love those that are easy to love? Do I just love those who are in my clique, in my friends? Do I just love those who make my life easier? Those who are convenient to love? What happens when I have to love someone I don't want to love? You know, often at church, we come to church every Sunday, and this is the only time we love. We say, hey, how are you? I'm good. Cool. All right, I'll see you next Sunday. And that's it. That's our love done for the week. It's fake pleasantry, pleasantries, isn't it? We're nice, we're pleasant, but do we really love? Or there's someone you aren't getting along with at church, and you smile, and, and you put on that veneer, the appearance that you're interested, but underneath the surface, you're, you're internally rolling your eyes at them waiting for that person to stop talking so you can talk to your friends instead. Love isn't sincere. It's just a veneer. Imagine if we're sincere in love. What would that look like? Like all of us collectively making efforts to truly love and genuinely care for one another. In the Gospel of John chapter 13, Jesus says, the world will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. Imagine the impact that would make on us and those who walk through our doors to meet this community, a community of people loving one another genuinely. There are, uh, there are two places in my life that I consist- consistently uh, talk to people who don't go to church. Uh, one of them is the cafe. I, w- I often go there to work. And the other place is the gym. I like going to the gym because I get to talk to the staff and I, got to, you know, I get to work out at the same time. Um, but I, get, I got to know one of the, the gy- uh, gym staff there and I... Uh, and he was telling me, I told him I'm a pastor and everything, and he just starts telling me all this stuff, all his bad experiences about church, like, I don't know, confession time or something. I don't know what he was doing, but he was just sharing with me all this stuff. He went to church when he was a teenager growing up. He says he believes in the existence of God. There's got to be some, you know, some God out there, but he's not interested in church because he said this, it was full of hypocrites. Even the pastor himself was a hypocrite. He wasn't impressed by people who claim uh, to be a people of love, but he felt that they were hypocritical in the way that they showed love. Yeah, that made me really sad. You know, I wanted to tell, tell him that no one's perfect and we all will make mistakes and, and we preach a message of perfection when we're imperfect people. But that's the reputation people that, that the church has with some people. That's the impression that people have of the church, are people who preach love but practice a fake, insincere love. What if we were to be sincere? What if we were to be genuine in love? Well, I'm praying for this guy. I'm praying that he'll come to our church one day and see, hopefully, that our church will be one of sincere love and he'll meet Christ through that. Verse 10 also says, though, it says, be devoted to one another in love. There's a lot of love going on here. Uh, if you have a different translation in front of you, an English translation perhaps, it'll say, love each other with a brotherly affection. See, what Paul is saying here is love each other deeply like family. Often we say this here, hey, church family, how are you going? Why? Because verses like this in the Bible where God calls us to be committed to each other like you would be committed to your very family. It's so easy to treat church not like a family though, isn't it? We'll come to church and we treat it more like a social club or our, or our soccer team. I'll, I'll go to church when it suits my schedule and if it's fun or if I get something out of it. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? I'm not going to church to make new friends. I mean, if I do, that's cool, but I'm going to go for me. And that commitment to the team is really on that consumeristic level. It's not driven by love. It's not driven by uh, what we heard last week, sacrifice. 
But here it says, be devoted to one another in love. Be committed to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's really hard though, isn't it? I mean, it, again, it's easy to love our friends and those we have in common, the people that we have stuff in common with, but it's hard to love those when our personalities clash. It's hard, and I've seen that happen in our church. I've seen it happen with uh, groups of people, and I've seen it with my own relationships with people in this church. And when it breaks down, it, it's, it's awkward, and there's a lot of tension. People will just leave. People will just leave the church community because of one person that they have beef with. It's really hard to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, isn't it? Why bother? This is optional. That's what we think. It's optional. Why bother? I can find another church and have better relationships. I've experienced this. And, and my, if you guys don't know, my personality rubs people the wrong way. Uh, if you, if you uh, have talked to me for a if you get to know me, you'll know that I'm quite blunt and direct. Uh, if you, well, you know, and I, I am. I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to uh, justify that. Um, but seven years, right, of being a pastor and 18 years of being a Christian, I'm still learning to love people. I'm still learning uh, to love people because everyone is different. Now, I know how I love people. I know how I naturally want to love people. I want to ask you questions. I want to learn uh, how you're going. I want to hear how you're going. I want to ask questions. I want to help you problem solve. That's me loving you. Okay, so if you ever sit down with me and I start helping you solve problems, I'm actually trying to help and be helpful, not be you know, blunt and ask you a hundred questions interrogating you. But that's how people feel. I don't, I don't, I'm not really good at empathy, and I'm trying. Like I'm really in it. And I know it's my weakness. I really want to be more empathetic. My wife is super empathetic. She's on the other end of the, you know, she's super empathetic. She's teaching me how to be more empathetic. And I've learned that over these years, and I'm still learning. But what I realize is this. I need to learn to love people the way they need to be loved. You know, for me, I just want to love them the way I know how to love them. I'm going to ask you a hundred questions and say, oh, okay, this is what you need to do. This is how we can fix this problem. And that's me loving you because I'm giving you the time of day. You know, I'm sitting with you. I'm giving you my, my thoughts and my problem-solving skills. But that's not how everyone needs to be loved. Now, it's interesting because people who aren't Christian, for example, will say to me, Mikey, if they don't accept the love you give them, they don't understand you, tell them to get over it. They have to accept you as you are. And usually, yeah, you know, yeah, give them blunt, tough love. You know, they can handle it. And while I usually would say I totally agree, I can't. Because the gospel calls me to love, even if it makes me feel out of my comfort zone. It's what sincere love looks like. It's what being devoted to my church family will look like. We need to see them as our family. You know, and... I understand that it's, you guys might, some of you guys might be new, you haven't known each other for that long, so it's really hard to, you know, you've known your family all your life. But for the church family, it is hard and it's going to take time. There's going to be areas in your life where you go, oh man, I don't, you know, yeah, sure, they're my brother and sister in Christ, but I'm not going to inconvenience myself for them. I don't have time for that. But what if we did start seeing our church like a church family and we were committed to them? Would our weeks look any different? See, when we're committed uh, to each other in love, we can show love like what verse 13 says. It says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. See, we can look out for one another's needs as a healthy, functioning family would. If your sister or brother called you up, your parents had an issue, right, and called you up. This is what my mom does. She calls me up. She messages me, texts me. She says, hey, I need my Wi-Fi to be fixed. Can you come over and fix my Wi-Fi? 
The other day, actually, I taught her how to use Instagram, and she was really thankful for that, you know. But giving her that time, she wanted help. And of course, you're going to drop things for your family. The church should be a place where people aren't in need. We're a family looking out for one another. We're there for one another, caring for each other, welcoming each other into our very homes, and practicing genuine hospitality. Why do we do that? Why do we want to invite people into our homes? Because in our homes, we're most vulnerable, aren't we? People see what, how we live. People see what our homes are like, how, we, how clean we are and how unclean we are. We want to pe- gather the people into our homes because they're our family. We see them as our family, our church family. It's our spiritual family. It doesn't matter if your cutlery isn't matching. It doesn't matter if, you're, if you run out of cups and we have to drink tea out of a bowl. It's okay. Invite people over and show hospitality. Invite your church family over because you want to love and care for them and you don't want them to be in need, looking out for each other. Invite them because you want to invite them into your life. That's what gospel hospitality looks like. Your house really doesn't need to look like it's something from Instagram. I know that's a lot of us, we think that, like, oh, our house needs to be clean and uncluttered like Instagram. It doesn't need to be. Just be real, be vulnerable. Invite people into your home and into your life. And so let me ask, is that us? Is that you? Last week, I got us to think, what is a healthy church? Last week, we, th- we said a healthy church is where we're looking at serving one another with our gifts, using our time, using our abilities to, to look out for the needs of each other using, uh, as God has called us to. And when we're not healthy, what does that look like? Well, for us, in this, this part of the, the uh, chapter, it really looks like a dysfunctional family, wouldn't it? If we weren't healthy. One that wouldn't communicate with each other how they feel. One that won't serve each other because we feel entitled. One where the, the weekly family dinner is an optional thing. You'll show up at Easter and Christmas maybe, or dare I say, when your name is on a roster. One, you know, it's, that's what it's like. One where, we, where people hide in shame because of sin and are scared to confess because of judgment or punishment, which is sad. One where people aren't willing to be real and genuine, but instead come together with a veneer of love that's really just fake pleasantries. Honestly, this is going to happen in every church. This is very real, a very real issue. What will your devotion in love to your church family look like? If you were really to think about it for yourself, forget about others around you, what would it look like for yourself? How are you treating this church? Even with our dysfunctional church family, will you still commit to each other in love? The thing about this, why this is so difficult for us is because we grew up in this Western individualistic culture, haven't we? where we live for numero uno, number one, me, myself, and I. I don't have to care for anyone else. I just need to care for myself. That's what I've been taught. So when, do we, get to, when we do get hurt, when there is dysfunction in this church family, it's so easy to jump ship. Move to another church family that will welcome you, tick all the boxes, that make you feel comfortable, it's convenient for you. And for a little while, we'll do this. A few years at a time. We call this church hopping, Right? Our generation is so mobile, there's always new opportunities, different experiences we're craving for, so we'll spend a few years in one church and think, okay, I've experienced it all, I've done it, I've spent a few years here, it's not doing it for me anymore, this church family isn't very exciting, they're not helpful for me, I'm not getting anything out of it, they're hard to love, let's find another church. But what if God wants us to be committed, devoted to one another? And maybe it's when we're devoted to each other, that's when growth and spiritual flourishing happens, when it's good and when it's hard. And maybe it's through those moments when we have to work together as a family, even through the rough patches, 
that the gospel becomes visible and tangible. When we can work through the highs and lows, loving those who might be difficult to love and experiencing God's work together over many years for growth and maturity. Wouldn't it be like 10 seasons of friends? You know, where you just have to keep working through those, those issues together? But better, because it's real and it's not a sitcom. Now, now, sure, I think there are also good reasons to leave churches. There are good reasons to move churches. We can talk about that some other time. But together, what if we could persevere and practice stuff like verse 11, never lacking in zeal, keeping your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, being joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. See, as Paul shared these instructions, there's a, toge- a togetherness, a thereness. We're there for one another with sincere love. Disclaimer, right? Now, we have to be real. Honestly, this is our generation. We need boundaries. And sometimes in the church, people take advantage of this idea of love and commitment, and we, and we end up be having codependent relationships and toxic relationships that's really not good for anyone. They don't glorify God. That's not love when we enable sin. And what I mean is if, even if you... Uh, is we need to see that love stems first from God. We need to find our security there. That we want to point each other to Christ, not to ourselves, because you're not the Messiah, I'm not the Messiah. We need people to see, yes, you're welcome in this community. We love you like a family. But the one you're going to get validation and affirmation from, that's going to be Christ, ultimately. We need to adjust our expectations to the church family, to be in line with God's love for you and our selfless love towards others around us. Let's practice these instructions in both giving and receiving, keeping in mind again what healthy church we should look like, healthy relationships should look like, and coming back to gospel truth. Hate what is evil, it says. Cling to what is good. Let goodness and truth be behind how we do sincere love here. Now, calling us to love others and loving our enemies doesn't come out of the blue, does it? It's not some onerous command. Do this. Don't do this, you know, do this out of guilt. Do this out of duty or shame. It doesn't say that. It comes from hearing everything we've heard so far in the book of Romans. Romans 1 to 11, chapters 1 to 11, being called to love others has has to begin with knowing God's love for us. And we've heard so much about that, haven't we? Romans 5 tells us that when we stand before God as sinners, but God loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us, even when we were his enemies. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate from his love when we're brought into this family, when we know him as God our Father. Nothing can separate us from his love through Christ. Again and again, Romans is telling us how much God loves us. And we need to understand that from Romans 1 to 11, there's this big picture of the gospel message of God's uh, deep love for us in Christ that has saved us. So here in Romans 12, again, there's this command, love one another. You know, if you don't get that, if you don't understand the gospel, that God has loved you and has shown mercy to you, that Christ has died and has risen for you, it's going to be so hard. It's going to be so hard to, one, be a living sacrifice like we heard last week, but two, it's going to be so hard to love others around you, to move towards others in love, to be committed to others, sharing your life with others, opening your house and serving them, deep fellowship around Jesus. You can only do that when you realize how Christ has served us first and what it looks like to be loved by God so then we can love others. And friends, as we think through all these instructions, you can't do this in isolation, can you? The Christian life can't be done at home on, 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 on YouTube. The Christian life can't be done at home with your Spotify worship music. We need to do this together so we can practice selfless love. And we need to be committed to each other. 
You know, the, the consumeristic attitude at church should make us really question if we even understand the gospel at all. Because love is working out how to serve each other in the good and the bad. To stand with one another, even if we have to be inconvenienced. Gospel love isn't, isn't that transaction, is it? It's not about what I can get out of this church family, but it's selfless and generous and sacrificial. But you know what else is going to make our lives stand out better than a sitcom? It's the love that we show to our enemies, outside, people outside of the church as well. Let's keep reading verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yeah, our love for one another is one thing, but we're going to go a step further here and love our enemies too. Love those who might rub us the wrong way. Love those who might be really difficult. And wow, we know this, don't we? Uh, Christians and people outside the church, we know this, but it's so hard, isn't it, to do? Uh, I just said, in our relationships, we need to have healthy boundaries. and, and, And guess what that means in popular psychology? It means you don't need negativity in your life. You don't need def- difficult people who make your life harder. Cut them off, avoid them. Yet in this short, pa- in this short passage we read, verse 10, honor one another above yourselves. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We've got three commands here that tell us about being at peace with each other and, and looking to each other's needs. Those verses sound very difficult, uh, different to cutting people out of your lives if they're negative. Right? I read this article on Psycholo- Psychology Today, this website, on how to be happy. Uh, it, it was linked to, from WikiHow. Have you guys ever used WikiHow to learn how to like, change a tire or something? Uh, WikiHow, is, there's this article about how to be happy, and there are links to this Psychology Today article about how to be happy. It says, uh, the main points, uh, this one main point is about ditching negative people. This is what it read. It's really interesting. It said, ditch the crabs. Okay, ditch the crabs. If you put a crab in a bucket, it will easily climb out. But if you put a second crab in the bucket, neither of them will escape. Once one starts to escape, the other will pull it back down into the bucket. In other words, surround yourself with positive people. It's hard to maintain a positive perspective if you're constantly pulled down by the negative negativity of friends, family, or co-workers. If you get trapped in a negative conversation, gracefully try to change the subject to something more positive. However, if you are surrounded by a bucket full of negative crabs, it may be time to reevaluate your circle of friends in an effort to be surrounded by uplifting individuals. Now, I actually think that's really unhelpful. Uh, if negativity of friends, family, or co-workers, wow, cut them out of your life. It, it, it really just shows how countercultural the gospel and Christianity is. Yes, we need to care about our own mental health. I'm all for healthy boundaries. But cutting people out of your life because they're negative or difficult. The gospel calls us to live in harmony with one another. And yet, if we are going to be in the secular workforce, we're going to be in offices or clinics uh, where there'll be negative and difficult people to work with. We're going to raise our children and send them to schools and there'll be people in their classes that are negative and difficult. And we'll be tempted to think, okay, if I just go to a Christian workplace, if I just go to a Christian school, send my kids to a Christian school, they'll be safe. 
But the truth is, there are negative and difficult people everywhere. You yourself, me included, sometimes, often, we are that negative, difficult person. And we think the church, our Christian bubble, will be safe. Ah, no one's perfect. None of us are perfect. We should expect that even within that Christian bubble, there are going to be people that are difficult and negative. And so when we get offended, when we get hurt, we want to just cut these people out. What if there was an alternative to this pop psychology of avoidance? I've been married to, to Heidi, my wife, for nine years now. If she took this advice, she would have left me ages ago. I'm a difficult person to live with, aren't you, at times? Before God, don't, don't you and I have so many flaws that we wouldn't want, we, like if, if you saw yourself from outside, you wouldn't want to go near that person. If God took this advice and said, cut out negative people, if God told us to take this advice, cut out negative people to be happy, well, if he took that advice, we couldn't get close to God at all, would we? Now, I, I get it. I'd argue, Mikey, these people aren't my friends. I don't owe them anything. I didn't marry them. I have no commitment to them. And while that is true, God says, as much as it is possible on your end, be at peace with everyone. It's not transactional, is it? It's selfless. God knows that there will be enemies, people who will make your life difficult and hard. Again, hear me out. I'm not saying stay in toxic relationships. Don't, don't be a doormat to abuse. That's, that's not love. We're not enablers to sin. It isn't good to stay in those relationships, but we have to be discerning. And things aren't often black and white, are they? It says overcome evil with good, though. The gospel calls us to live in a world where we love people that are difficult to love because we were loved when we were difficult to love by God. When we understand this, we can also understand the other instruction of not taking vengeance upon ourselves. Vengeance belongs to God. He's the judge, not us. God will repay evil for evil. Instead, we're called to pray for our enemies and do good to them. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, this idea of heaping burning coals on his head, it, it's a metaphor. Wake them up. Lead, lead this hostile person to remorse and repentance by doing good. Do good and lead them to God. Express love to them in actions and words and lead them to God. It is... And I get it, it is so hard to do that. It is so hard to be kind to those who are hostile to us. But sometimes it's helpful to understand or to think at least where they're coming from. You know, we're seeing so much in, the, in movies these days, aren't we? The anti-hero, those movies where um, we're seeing hostile, angry people and how misunderstood they are. You know, movies like The Joker that came out a couple of years ago or Maleficent or Cruella that's just released in cinemas this last few weeks. Uh, they're stories of villains that are just misunderstood. And perhaps that, that's helpful to an extent, but it doesn't excuse their hostility or sin. It helps us as, as people to approach others with an understanding, though, that we don't know everything about a person. Yeah, they might be hostile, but we don't know what they've experienced. We don't know the environment they grew up in. They might have a deep hurt in their lives. And we might need to remember that, that hurting people hurt people. It doesn't excuse them. They can't, uh, they can't just say they're the victim. Everyone needs to be responsible for their choices. But it helps us, doesn't it? Hurting people hurt people. And it helps us to approach them with patience and kindness, even if they will still choose hostility towards us. 
And while we are tempted to respond to angry people with our own anger as an emotional response, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's so much wisdom, so much insight in that one statement. You see, if we were to pay back evil with evil, then we've lost the battle, haven't we, to evil. We need to win the battle by doing good. We're not any, any better than them. We see so much stuff in our culture and our society, don't we, about, about abuse and hate, and there's so much research into this, but there's this, it's really, a, you know, in our Christian terms, I just call it a cycle of sin. There's a cycle of sin that goes on, where, where, where we have pe- people raised by parents that were abusive to them, and they end up being abusers when they're adults, and it's hard to get out of that cycle of sin. And it's the same for us. We want to take vengeance when we've been wronged. And it's just this vicious cycle of payback. You've hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. But what if we could escape that cycle of abuse and sin? What if we could not be overcome by the evil that's been shown to us, but instead win the battle by doing good to the one who has done harm to us? We actually lose when we hate. Everyone loses. But if we were to love and forgive, it's the whole, you know, that, that whole phrase, you know, be the better man. But you're not being the better man or be a better woman or whatever. It's not to do it to be proud of yourself or to be better than someone else. It's actually to do it because you've been shown forgiveness. You've been shown love when you were hostile to God first. But secondly, do it because we don't want to fall into the trap of spreading more evil and sin. And even thirdly, we do it because we want them, the hostile person, to be softened by our love and to be led to repentance. Wouldn't that be the miracle? I've heard stories of Christians show love to their enemies and their enemies come to faith because they experience God's love for them. It's so radical. It's so against culture. Culture tells us love is transactional, but the gospel tells us love is selfless. We've been shown that love. We've received that love in Jesus. Now, I want us to think about these things, loving our church and loving the outsider as well. This is all hard, isn't it? I still struggle. I still struggle a lot when I've been hurt by people in the church or people outside of the church. Uh, To do good to those who have hurt me, who've hurt uh, my family or my loved ones, that's hard. I I don't do love well. I'd rather, I'm tempted rather, to gossip and slander and school them even, confront them. But to do good, to feed them and give them a drink, man, that's hard. But imagine the early church. The early church, after Christ died and was raised again, the early church in the time of Rome, the Romans, they probably faced heaps of persecution, heaps of hatred for their faith. And Paul is saying, do good to those who are hostile to you. Man, that would have been hard for them. Let me encourage you, though. You and I can do it. The early church did it. And many Christians over the years still continue to, even today. Let's do this together. Let's give each other courage. If we know we are loved by God, if we believe God's love for us is sufficient and enough, if we are secure in ourselves and how God sees us, we can. Remember what's written for us earlier in Romans. Uh, is 8, 31, 8, chapter 31. In the context of God's love, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul The writer of Romans, Paul the Apostle, he isn't a stranger to opposition, is he? In fact, if you're a Christian today, you should expect opposition just as our Lord Jesus did. But Romans tells us, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's this rock-solid confidence. I have God and that's enough. He's far greater, more powerful than the enemy, whether human or demonic. If he is for us, who can be against us? 
We need to have that security so we can love even our enemies. I read this poem yesterday uh, in a book by, uh, this poem is by Augustus Toplady. He's the guy who wrote Rock of Ages. Uh, And he writes this in this poem. A sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. He smiles and my comforts abound. His grace as the Jews shall descend and walls of salvation surround the soul he delights to, to defend. And walls of salvation surround the soul he delights to defend. It's so powerful to be reminded that God is for us. He'll take care of us. When we feel the injustice that's been done to us, God will repay evil for evil. And we can leave justice in his hands. He is for us. So if people are going to be hostile to me, will I let my emotions of anger and vengeance get the better of me? Or will I let the gospel shape how I respond? Will I see that Christ himself died and sacrificed his life for me when I was his enemy out of love? In the same way, I've been called to love my brother and sister in Christ. Will I love, will I extend that love and kindness to the outsider? You see, what we discover through the gospel uh, is, that, is that the Friends sitcom, while entertaining and hilarious, uh, is still a love that's transactional. Friendship that bonds them together. But what we see in the gospel, that we're called to love in a, is to love in a way that's selfless. And what we should expect to come, uh, what we should expect is that it's going to come at a cost to our lives. We don't do it out of guilt, we don't do it out of duty, but a joy in view of God's mercies and love that he's lavished upon us in Christ. We can love like that. We're called to love like that. And we can love like that how? Because you and I, we can have a deep security in the gospel and know God's love for us that overflows to the way we love our church community, our church family, and the way that we love the outsider. Surely, friends, that's a love that others who are watching in would want in their lives as well. Let's pray. Father, we we are thankful for the love that you've shown to us in Christ at the cross, that you poured your love out upon us through his death and his resurrection, Lord, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be invited into a relationship with you, so that we could know you, so that we could enter into eternity with you. And we pray, Lord, as we think through all those promises you've given us and the relationship we have with you, the love that's so deep and wide and secure, you'll help us, Lord, to have that confidence to love others, the courage to love others, people who might have hurt us, people outside of the church who might be antagonistic towards the Christian faith, but, Lord, even more so, love those in our own church family as well. Just as much, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to to move towards others around us in love because we have that deep love, the great love that's been shown to us in Christ that lives in our hearts. We do pray, Lord, that you will uh, do this by your spirit, give us courage, give us strength, uh, and help us to be a people marked by love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.